going to be Isaiah 9, 2-7, which Ryan will read for us. Isaiah 11, 1-10, which Lisa will read. John 1, 1-5, which John will read. And then lastly, Colossians 1, 15-20, which Tom will read. As we read these texts this morning, what we really want to focus on and see is simply the, the glory of Jesus Christ. In this series, as we've looked at Advent this year, Christmas this year, we have seen our need for Christ. We have seen how Christ is truly both God and man, how he came to die for us, to take our punishment, to take our place. And now, because Jesus has done all of these things, we recognize this morning that he indeed has a name that is above every name, that his glory is matchless in all of history and will be matchless for all the future. And so I pray that these texts will encourage your heart. And let me also pray that God will simply give me strength to proclaim his word clearly, that we may be built up in Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us once more now. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word? God, would you awaken faith in our hearts? Would you help us, God, not merely to give intellectual assent to these things that we are about to read and hear, uh, but Lord, would you help us to actually delight in our hearts in these things which we read and hear. Um, and so, God, send your Spirit for that purpose now. I pray that your Spirit would work especially upon my heart as I proclaim your word. Lord, help me to proclaim it truly, not just in the facts of the matter, but help me to proclaim it truly even as I exhibit my own joy and my own heart for you in this text. Um, and so, God, would you come in all these ways now and help us, we ask in Jesus' name. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. John 1, 1-5 through 5. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Well, as we go to God's word this morning, you may have noticed that you do have an outline for this morning's message in your bulletin. Um, I don't know why the Lord led me to do that this morning in particular, but he did. So I was obedient and I've given you an outline. Um, The reason why I don't normally uh, do an outline, just in case you're curious, is just because I do think that we have a tendency, here in the West especially, to think that even something like a sermon or a time together in church is mainly about knowledge. It's mainly about information. And we're very prone to come together as a people and as good Christians. We want to learn God's word. We want to fill our heads with knowledge. And yet scripture clearly teaches that mere knowledge is not enough for us in order to walk in God's ways, in order for us to please God. It takes much more than simply knowing the right thing. It takes a delight in God's word, a delight in the truth, not simply knowledge of the truth. And so I'm always afraid that when we come together, if I somehow make my sermon seem like it has a lot of really good information for you, that you yourself will go home thinking, wow, today I learned a lot of really good information, and your heart will not be changed at all. And so I want you to hear a sermon, not simply as truth that you need to believe, although of course my prayer is that the sermon holds much truth, but rather the sermon is something to exhort you, something that you are to hope in, to follow after, to be obedient to. And so even though I've given you this outline this morning, uh, I hope that doesn't lead you to overly intellectualize this sermon or treat it as simply something you need to know. Um, In fact, as I was printing it up this morning, I was even thinking maybe this would free someone up to not take as many notes or not to think so hard about where the sermon is at and rather to simply delight in to receive the truth that is being proclaimed. And so that's the posture that I hope you have as you hear every sermon, but especially the sermon this morning. So what I want us to see this morning, as I mentioned before the readings, is that we do want to see the glory of Jesus Christ. We want to see just how majestic he is, and especially in chapter 9 and chapter 11 of Isaiah that we're going to look at most closely this morning, we see Jesus' glory explained mainly in terms of him being a king, of him being a glorious king. Now, We here in the United States, obviously, we don't live in a monarchy. We live in a democracy. And so we're very used to new kings, or we call them presidents, uh, being elected every four years. And we're very used to the idea that on election night, we're going to hear someone announced as president. So most recently, we had an election night, and we heard that Joe Biden was going to be the next president. Now, you may have been very excited about that. You may have not been very excited about that. But regardless of your attitude toward Joe Biden as president, you probably did not expect the whole world to change, the whole earth to change with the election of Joe Biden. We here in America are actually kind of blessed that regardless of which party wins, who's in office, our politics mostly happen between the 40-yard lines of a football field, so to speak. We're not going to have one president come into place and lead us into some Marxist socialism. We're not going to have one president come into place and lead us into nationalistic fascism or anything like that. We play mostly in the middle of the field. And so we have these announcements of new presidents and we think, okay, well, maybe a couple things will be different. But by and large, the world is the same the day after someone is elected as the day before someone was elected. There are no dramatic changes. But the announcement of Jesus as king is something totally different, beloved. 
It is not the announcement of some incremental change or a couple new policies being added here and there. It is the announcement of the whole world being turned upside down, the world being turned on its head. There is wholesale change when Jesus comes as king. And that's what I want us to see as we look at these passages this morning, just how glorious, how enormous the changes are that Jesus brings into place when he comes as king. So the first thing we need to see from these passages is simply the fact that Jesus is king. And so if you want to keep your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 9, we see this most clearly in Isaiah 9 and verses 6 and 7. So notice in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Right? There's no clearer way to say that Jesus is king than to say that the government will be upon his shoulder. Whatever form of government this is, it's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone of this government. He is the leader of this government. Everything depends upon him in this government. And then look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Now when it says the throne of David, David was a great king in Israel. So if Jesus is sitting on the throne of David, it means that Jesus is indeed sitting as king. Jesus has a kingdom. And so he has come as king. You see the same thing in Isaiah 11. If you want to flip over there, it says there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And what does this mean? Shoot from the stump of Jesse. Well, who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. Again, King David. And so if there is this stump of Jesse, this stump of kingship, it says a shoot shall come forth from this stump. So Jesus is part of this lineage of Jesse, this lineage of David. Again, he is a king. And then if you'll look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11, it says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, we may, not, may see these two verses as a reference to kingship because, again, in our American system, we've, decide, we've divided the executive from the judiciary, right? So if we need something decided, we don't go to the president. We go to a judge, and the judge decides it for us. But in this system of government that Christ operates in, there is not a separate judiciary from the executive. Christ is both the executive and the judiciary. He both decides what direction the kingdom will go, the nation will go, and he decides disputes that happen within that kingdom. You can see this in the Bible itself. If you remember the famous story of Solomon, when the two women come before him and they're both arguing over this baby, they didn't go before a judge, they went before King Solomon. The king was the supreme court. He was the ultimate decider of every dispute. And so here in 11, 3 and 4, when it says that he will not judge by what his eyes see, decide disputes, he will judge the poor, he will decide with equity. All of these words are simply another metaphor, another way of saying that Jesus will be king. He will be the one that makes these decisions. He will be the one that calls all of these judgments. Jesus is king. So, Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 both tell us about this reality that when the Messiah comes, he will be king. But notice that the description of the kingship of the Messiah is not simply that he is king. Again, he's not just a king like there have been many kings before and there will be many kings after. No, he is a particularly glorious king. And these two chapters describe the glory of this kingship in two primary ways. First, it tells us that the king himself is a really great, a really amazing king, but then it also tells us that his kingdom will be a really great and a really amazing kingdom because this king is so great. And so to, to see the greatness of this king, I encourage you to look at Isaiah 9, verse 6 in particular. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will pee upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and then hear these glorious names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. These were titles that were not given to any other king of ancient Israel or even any other king of the ancient world that we know of. These are unique titles in all of history that Jesus alone would be the fullness of all of these things. He would be a wonderful counselor. He would also be mighty God, also everlasting father, also prince of peace. He is the superlative of every good thing. He is a great king in and of himself, simply in his own personality. And you see this again in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. It says, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And so we see described here a king who is full of wisdom and understanding, who is full of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Again, the the king that Jesus is is unrivaled in all of human history. Verse 5 of chapter 11 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I don't know if you're like me, but every politician I see out there in America right now, I look at them with a jaded eye. I don't think there is any one of them that is all that great. And Jesus is the only one in all of history who we don't have to look at with a jaded eye. We don't have to wonder what his ulterior motives might be or what he might have going on behind the scenes. He is a king who is perfect in righteousness and faithfulness in every good thing. And so the king of this kingdom is perfect in his glory and in his beauty. And because this king himself is so glorious and beautiful, the kingdom itself will flourish. If you go to Isaiah 9 verse 3, it says, You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. So notice first this characteristic of the kingdom, increasing in joy. This is the nature of the kingdom that Christ has. And verse 3 goes on. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. So he takes two examples of the the height of joy that could be imagined in the ancient world, right? They didn't have uh, breaking seasons of new TV shows or new toys coming out or new gadgets or anything like that. No, the highlight of their year was when the harvest was all done, All the food had come in. They knew they had what they needed for the winter and they were able to rejoice and rest. This is the sort of joy that we have in the kingdom of Christ. And so his kingdom is characterized by joy. And then it tells us why this kingdom will have so much joy. I think I've said this in a previous sermon, but notice all those fours at the beginning of the following verses. Or because, why is this joy in his kingdom. And I want to highlight three things in particular. The first thing we see is that there is joy in his kingdom because he is not an oppressive king, because there is no oppression in his kingdom. That's 9 verse 4. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. Again, in ancient Israel and in every other place in the ancient world, kings were known to be brutal taskmasters. They were the ones that built the great palaces, the great temples, the great pyramids, all these enormous projects that the kings needed to complete required slave labor. They required many resources. They required high taxes. It was the king also that raised the army every summer to go out for war, that required husbands and fathers to go away from their families in order to fight battles for their king. And so this, these kings were always known to be great oppressors. Again, we see this in Scripture, even in the case of Solomon, when the son of Solomon comes to the throne, everybody asks the son of Solomon, please don't be hard on us like your father was, making us work so hard. And of course, in his foolishness, he decided that he would be just as hard as Solomon. And yet in Jesus, we see a different kind of king that yields a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom that is not characterized by oppression and weariness and burden but a kingdom that is characterized by gentleness and rest. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. What sort of yoke does Jesus have? Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the sort of kingdom that Jesus is bringing to fruition. 
It's almost mysterious to us how Jesus can, on the one hand, be so demanding. Just read the Sermon on the Mount if you have any question about how demanding Jesus can be. His rules are so high as to be almost impossible to follow. And yet, on the other hand, Jesus can be so incredibly gentle and careful with us. I think one of the main ways that this mystery is solved in the New Testament is that none of Jesus' commands are to be performed by sheer force of will or fear of punishment. Rather, all of Jesus' commands are given in love and are to be kept in love. And because all of his commands are simply the fruit of our desire for him, our love for him, our passion for him, it means that his commands are not burdensome. Rather, we are compelled by the joy that we have in his kingship, the joy we have in the love that he already has for us, so that he can command all these high things, but it is not a heavy burden. We are not forced to do these things. We are not merely threatened with punishment. Rather, we are told that you are loved You can love me, and because we can have the intimacy of this relationship, to remain in this fellowship through obedience is a good and enjoyable thing. It is not oppression. It is not burdensome. No, all oppression has been broken, and we now have freedom in Jesus Christ. The second thing that we see is glorious about this kingdom is that the kingdom brings peace. And so, the second four that we see here in Isaiah 9, verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And then in verse 6, we see him called the Prince of Peace. And then in verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so the kingdom of Jesus Christ is characterized by peace. We see this also in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9, just this incredible passage describing the peace that exists in the kingdom of Christ. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So this kingdom will be so peaceful that even Cows and oxen can be led by this little child because they are not resistant anymore. They are not bucking anymore. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. This is a kingdom characterized by perfect peace, where even the animals that had once been violent, eating other animals, poisoning children, now are at peace. We see this clearly in the New Testament, seeing how Jesus is indeed the king of peace. We read in Colossians 1 verse 20, just before the message, that through Jesus, God wanted to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right now, one thing that characterizes the world all over the earth is violence. Romans 1 tells us that every human being has a deep-seated sense of their rebellion against God, and they have rejected the truth of God. Romans 1, 18 and 19 says that by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And because all humans have this knowledge that they have violated the rules of their creator, many humans then get this sense of, well, if I've already broken God's law, if I don't know the way back in, why not just sin as much as I want? Why not just do as much evil as I possibly can? I'm already unclean. I'm already rejected by God. And as a result, human beings go about doing violence and wickedness wherever they go. Because there is this sense already of a separation from God, of not having peace with God. And because there is not peace with God, there is not peace between man and man. 
This is why getting our hearts and minds around the forgiveness that flows through Christ Jesus is so important. Because when we understand that we have been forgiven, that we are at peace with God, then there really is no longer any excuse to sin anymore because we have been brought into relationship with God. Our problem of sin has been fixed. We are fully clean. We are fully welcomed by God and have peace with Him. And therefore, we don't sense any futility in our lives. Rather, we sense acceptance when we walk in obedience to God. And when our hearts can grasp this dramatic difference between walking in obedience and intimacy with God versus walking in rebellion to Him and having a guilty conscience, then we will know the great purpose of abiding in Christ and we will know the peace of Christ's kingdom. And so in this way, peace with God, when our consciences are cleaned, when we know that we can walk in obedience, this peace with God leads to peace with man. And so Christ's kingdom is indeed a kingdom of peace. The last glorious thing that we see about Christ's kingdom in this passage is that it is a kingdom of justice. The truly wrong are truly punished and the truly right are truly rewarded. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul describes the governments of the earth by saying that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his, his approval. For God, for he is God's servant for your good. And yet we all know that this description of government is a little bit overstated. There's always governments that punish those who seem innocent and they don't punish those who are in the wrong. If you've been following the news over this past year, you've seen plenty of stories just like this. People have spent years in prison only to be exonerated and found that they were not guilty. Or people who have great power and influence doing terrible things, but somehow getting away with it and going unpunished. The world around us right now is not a world of justice. And yet this is not how Christ's kingdom will operate. You can see in Isaiah 9 verse 7, when it says that he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, it says, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so Jesus' kingdom will truly be a kingdom of justice. And we see this reiterated again in Isaiah 11, verses 2 through 5. That the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with a breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And so those who are truly righteous will be proclaimed as innocent, and those who are truly guilty will be found guilty. You've probably seen before the statue of justice, where the justice is wearing a blindfold and holding the scales in her hand of showing that she has equal scales. Well, the reason why justice is blindfolded is not because justice does not look to the facts of the case. Of course, the opposite is true. Justice does look to the facts of the case. But the reason why justice is blindfolded is because justice does not consider the subjects of judgment that come before her, whether they are rich or poor, or what race they are, or where they are from. Justice is blind to all of these factors and is only considered with the rightness or wrongness of the action. Justice wears a blindfold precisely because of verses like Isaiah 11, verse 3, that he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide, decide disputes by what his ears hear. Jesus will, of course, look to what has actually happened, but he does not care who the evildoer is. He will make sure that judgment comes for all. And so his kingdom will be a kingdom of perfect justice, where evil is perfectly and justly punished, 
and good is perfectly and justly rewarded, regardless of any sort of other factors that our world seems to hold so dear. And so this is the glory of the kingdom of Christ. Now, I understand that in saying all this, you might be saying at this point, well, this all sounds really great. I'm really glad to hear that Christ is going to have such a glorious kingdom, that he is such a great king. But you're probably saying, where the heck is that kingdom right now? We look around the earth today and it does not seem that Christ is king. Even in these examples that I've already highlighted, we see that the world is not the way that Christ will run his kingdom. And so what are we supposed to do with this knowledge that Jesus is king? Are we just supposed to hold on until we die and then we get to enter and enjoy his kingdom? Or is Jesus supposed to be reigning right now? And if he is, then where are we supposed to be looking for the impact of his kingdom? What are we supposed to do with this information that Jesus is king? Well, first, I do want to be clear that Jesus is indeed king right now. As much as it may not appear to be the case, Jesus is ruling and reigning. In Matthew 28, Jesus says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. In fact, that's why we are to go forward and make disciples, because he has all authority. To say he has all authority is just another way of saying that he is king. Or even consider the angel's announcement to Mary at Christmas. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. So when Jesus is born, he is born to sit on that throne of David. Or perhaps most clearly, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25. It says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so this is the period of history we're in. We're waiting for the destruction of death. We're waiting for the very end when Jesus delivers the kingdom over to God his Father. But in the meantime, what is he doing? He is reigning and he is subduing his enemies. And so Jesus is reigning right now. And so again, what are we to do with this when it seems so often like he is not? Whether in our own personal lives or in our own families or in our nation as a whole, So many ways it seems like Jesus does not have the authority that he should have. With that in mind, I do think that the first exhortation for us and the most basic one to remember is that we are to live by faith and not by sight. And so we, when we encounter all the various ways in our lives and in the world around us that seem to defy the reality that Jesus is king, instead of giving in to what our eyes see and saying, well, I guess Jesus really isn't king because this bad thing is happening or that bad thing is happening. No, we hold on by faith to Isaiah 9, to Isaiah 11, and we say, no, I believe that Jesus is king and that this will turn out for the good. And so regardless of whatever sorrow we may have in our lives, we also have a profound and enormous hope that even though his reign may be confusing to us now, we can still trust that he is indeed reigning. Thinking of the Christmas story itself, I think of Simeon and Anna who all of their lives had this promise that the king would come and all of their lives they were probably confused many days saying, where is this king? God, you said I would see this king before I died and I still have not seen him. What did they do? Did they give up hope? Did they say, well, I guess God lied to me? No, they held on until very old age, until they finally saw the king that God had promised. We are to be like them, beloved. Even when we don't see how Jesus can be king right now, we have hope deep within our hearts that says, I believe he is king and his reign will become evident even if I do not see it now. There's so many days, beloved, where I wake up in the mornings and I can be discouraged about so many things. 
I can be discouraged about the state of my own soul, my own holiness before God. I can be discouraged about the state of my family, how we don't seem to be following him as much as I would like. I can be discouraged about the church, how we don't seem to have the same power that's spoken of in the New Testament. I can be discouraged about the world when I see all the injustice that is done and people simply seem to get away with it. Beloved, if I were to live in that discouragement, in that fear, in that anxiety, I would certainly be destroyed. But rather the attitude that we are to have toward all of these current failures that we see in our own lives and in the world around us, the attitude that we are to have is the attitude of the Apostle Paul when he says that I forget what lies behind and I strain on towards what lies ahead, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, the upward call of God is that the kingdom of Christ is being built and is coming. And so we hold on with hope to the reality that Jesus Christ is building his kingdom in this way. And so we have hope. In Isaiah 9, verse 7, it says that the increase of his kingdom will know no end. And so I forget my failings, I forget the failings of my family or of my church or of my nation, and I run to God and I say, God, you said that Jesus was coming as king and that he has all authority and that he reigns over everything, everywhere. God, make your word true. And so I pray that he would make it true in my life and in my family's life and in this church's life. I don't give up on this reality that Jesus is king. Rather, I pray for God to make his word true in us. I live by faith and not by sight. I don't give up in despair. Rather, I press on to know Christ's kingship coming in increasing fashion day after day. When I look forward to 2022, I don't think, oh no, another hard year is coming. How am I going to make it through think that if Jesus is king, then history is on our side. Things can only get better. And so I hold on to the reality that Jesus is reigning and he is subduing his enemies even now. That's what we do in the face of mystery. And yet scripture has told us a couple concrete ways that we do know that Christ's kingdom is coming. He tells us that Christ's kingdom is coming first on an individual level, that Christ will reign as king in our hearts. And he also tells us that Christ's kingdom is coming in a corporate way. That is that he is the king over his church, over his people. And so I also want to look at these two ways that we respond to this reality of Christ's kingship. How do we make him king in our own lives and how do we make him king over his church, over our church here at Providence. Well, when it comes to Christ being king in our lives, we see that his kingdom is made up only of those who are willing subjects. Again, he is not an oppressor. He is not an oppressive king. Rather, all who come to follow him come freely and willingly and voluntarily. And so, Who are the subjects of Christ? They are those who have voluntarily submitted to Jesus as king. Those who treat Jesus like he is truly the absolute monarch. That's what it means to make Christ Jesus Lord in our lives. It means that we say, Christ, you are king. I am not. I will do as you say. So as he is king over us individually, we must regain this truth that Jesus is Lord, that he is master, that he is king. I was watching a show recently about the czars of Russia, and one of the amazing things to me about the czars of Russia is just how absolute their control was. People basically treated these czars like gods because they knew that the czar had power over life and death. A czar could have almost anyone killed for almost any reason. If you made the czar angry in any way, even with a very reasonable request, the czar could have you killed and there would be nothing, no objection that you could make. There would be nothing that you could do about it. 
Now, we are not to obey Jesus from fear as someone would obey a czar, but, but picture the authority of the czar as this absolute ruler of his domain. And this is just a small picture of the authority that Jesus himself has. If people would obey a czar so absolutely, why should we not obey Jesus just as absolutely? If anything, we should be even more eager to obey Jesus in everything because he is even wiser than any czar, because he is more gracious than any czar, because his guidance will always be good, because he is more loving than any czar. Jesus is so good to us that we should indeed give him all authority in our lives. We should obey him absolutely. If you wonder what he commands, you don't have to wonder. Again, this afternoon, you could open your Bible to Matthew 5. You could read the Sermon on the Mount to hear the commands of this king. And beloved, it is our role that when we read these commands, we obey these commands. It is as simple as that. Because Jesus is king. And if you read these commands and you don't obey these commands, that means quite plainly that Jesus is not king in your life. Jesus is king in our lives to the extent that we give him authority, to the extent that we treat his word as God's word, as what we are to do regardless. Now, of course, in saying this, I don't mean to negate the fact whatsoever that God is forgiving and merciful that we will never be able to perfectly fulfill his commands. But the fact that God is so forgiving and merciful and that his forgiveness is freely offered should not somehow thereby lessen our obligation to obey Jesus as king. Again, if anything, it raises our obligation because he has been so generous to us and so kind to us. So we have all the more reason to obey him now. But if this idea of simply obeying the commands of Jesus as following him as king causes you to be nervous or to have anxiety, I'd love to talk with you more about that. I'd love to try to persuade you that there is a way in which we can treat Jesus as this czar, as this absolute monarch, and at the same time we can treat him as our loving companion. And so we do not have to choose between knowing the love and mercy of God or knowing the authority of God. We can know both. These two things should not be at odds in our hearts. Our knowledge of God's mercy should not cause us to diminish or neglect his commands, and our knowledge of his commands should not cause us to diminish or neglect his mercy. We treat him as absolute king, even though we know that he is merciful and gracious, and forgiving. And so this is how we treat Jesus as king over our lives individually. But Jesus is also king over his church. When he takes ownership, when he reigns over our lives individually, then part of his reign is he calls us to come together as his people in love, and so we do, and we form churches. And when we form churches as God's people, well, here in the church, more than anywhere else in all the earth, it should be evident that Jesus Christ is king. And so the church itself should have all of these characteristics of Christ's kingdom that I have just described. And so I just want to say a word about how each of these characteristics of Christ's kingdom that we looked at in Isaiah 9 and 11 actually comes to fruition in the church. Well, first we saw that Christ's kingdom is not oppressive. Rather, it is liberating. And in the same way, when we come into the church, we should not come into an environment where we feel that it is oppressive or heavy-handed. Rather, we should come into a community where we feel liberated, where we feel free to truly be our deepest selves without fear. In the New Testament, God encourages his elders to not lead with heavy hands or to rule in an oppressive way, but rather to lead with gentleness. Gentleness itself is described as one of the fruits of the Spirit. And so when we come together, we are not working on one another's wills to try to get each other to do what we think each other needs to do. Rather, we are trusting in the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in one another. 
And we are simply seeking to fan the flame of God at work in each of our lives that we may each walk in obedience to him as we know we desire to do and as we ought to do. And in that way, we are not oppressive towards one another. We are not guilt-tripping one another about things we do wrong. We know we are all sinners gathered by grace. And so we proclaim grace and we proclaim the commands of God and we trust that God will bring these two things beautifully together in each one of our lives so that we can each follow after God as we should. Second, we saw that Jesus' kingdom is peaceful. It is a peaceful kingdom. And first of all, we as a church surely proclaim the peace that can be had between God and man. And then springing from that, we proclaim peace between man and man. Ephesians 2, 13 to 16 is a beautiful portrayal of how God's peace comes to reside within the church. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The church should be a place of profound peace between brother and brother, sister and sister. When we come together, the church should in no way be a place of hostility or of dividing ourselves along any sort of line, but rather the church should be a place where deep relationships can flourish because we are not worried about being rejected We are not worried about violence coming against us, whether in verbal form or in physical form. No, we know that because we live in peace with one another, because we are all one in Christ Jesus, that we thereby have peace and love that flows between one another. The peace of God is not mere absence of war or conflict. It is complete inner peace. And then that expresses in itself a peace with others regardless of our circumstances. And so we in the church in every way strive for peace and do not give way to conflict. And then lastly, we see that the church is a place of justice. Christ's kingdom is a place of justice. Now, the clearest spot where the church exercises judgment, where we exercise justice, is in the case of church discipline. Indeed, church discipline, as sad as it always is whenever it arises, is also a good means that God has given us in order to mature us in the ways of Christ's kingdom, that we will learn to judge with just judgment, with fair judgment. We don't tolerate abuse or injustice in the church. We remove such people from our midst. We don't weigh the scales differently in terms of evil doing in the church simply because someone is maybe a big giver in the church or because they're a very charismatic personality. These things do not matter to us. We call right, right, and we call wrong, wrong. And we are willing to follow the commands of Christ accordingly. No matter how well-liked a person may be or how wealthy they are, we judge with just judgment. And yet, I think we see this call to justice in smaller ways as well, not simply in big cases of church discipline where we all have to proclaim judgment on someone. We also see them in the smaller judgments that we make. For example, when we come together as a church, do we give priority parking to our biggest givers or to our leaders? If someone among us looks to be homeless or unhygienic, do we kind of keep our distance and hope that that person doesn't return? Or do we welcome a person like that as we would welcome Christ Jesus himself? If God were to bless us to be a multi-ethnic church, do we treat one another differently based on our racial background or prefer one race above the other? 
When we're deciding who to invite over after church, do we weigh how sociable and mature that person is? Or do we simply ask who needs the blessing of a family and a good meal and invite that person over? In all these ways and in many more, we reveal if we are biased in our judgments. If we are biased towards rich or to poor or black or white or white collar or blue collar or mature or immature, beloved, our judgments within the church toward one another must be impartial regarding these things because Christ's judgments are impartial and he is our king. We are not to judge by what our eyes see, but we are to look at the hearts as is the continual refrain of First and Second Samuel. Man may look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so let us follow King Jesus in this. Welcome back, kids. It's good timing. I'm at my conclusion right now. And so in conclusion, we do want to make Jesus Christ the great hope of our lives. We want Jesus Christ to be the greatest political hope, so we don't get sucked into the reality distortion field of American politics. We want to make Jesus our practical hope so we don't give in to despair about our own condition or the condition of the world around us. We want to make Jesus the hope of our entire church, especially in this coming year. Let's not settle for simply being a nice group of people that all love Jesus. Rather, let's strive together to see Jesus' kingdom realized in every aspect of our lives together. I pray that people would be able to come into our fellowship and they would be able to say, my goodness, those people really are different. And we can simply answer yes, because Jesus is our king, unlike anywhere else in the world. And so I'll leave you now with the words of my favorite hymn of all time. We sang it at the beginning of the service, Joy to the World, the very Beginning of that hymn says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Beloved, we have great reason to sing and rejoice in this kingdom that Christ has bring, that Christ has brought. May we rejoice in him. Well, let me open up a time of prayer, of petition and confession now. Again, I'll open us and then I invite you to follow me in prayer over the matters that we've just read and I've just proclaimed, as well as any other matters that may be concerning your heart this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we rejoice to call you king. And at the same time, Lord, we also recognize that the world around us is full of things that would say to us that you are not king. Lord, in the biggest picture way right now, I do just pray that your lordship, that your kingship would be exercised over all those things that presently defy you. God, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that in that spirit, you would now hear our prayers of petition and confession to you.